listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. What does it look like to really love God? A lot of perceptions, a lot of conceptions, a lot of thoughts and definitions floating around. People have their own understanding of what love for God looks like. But where we turn to find the answer is in the timeless, matchless, unchanging Word of God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9 in our Father's Word. Luke chapter 9 in our Father's Word. What does love for God look like? Here it is. Now in Luke chapter 9, verse 44, Jesus drops a bombshell on the disciples. It's the second time he's done this in recent history. Luke chapter 9, verse 44. Look at what Jesus says to them. Let these words sink into your ears. He's prefacing this heavy bombshell by helping them to brace themselves. Brace yourself for what you're about to hear. And it still rings true for you and for me today. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. There's a sense in which this was not sinking into the disciples' minds, their hearts, their understanding just yet. Because in verse 22 of Luke chapter 9, Jesus laid it out with even more clarity and precision. He said, the Son of Man, that's the phrase, the term, the definition, the title that Jesus enjoyed using about himself the most. Remember from Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Jesus was often referring to himself as the Son of Man. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This had not sunk in to the ears, let alone the hearts, the minds, the understanding of the disciples just yet. So Jesus has to set them straight, has to remind them again in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And so we ask the question, Why would Jesus say these heavy things? Why would Jesus drop these bombshells on the disciples, those who are following him? What type of a kingdom is Jesus trying to establish? What type of a Messiah is Jesus? What is the mission of his life? What is he focused on? And from this point forward, we begin to see with great precision the focus of Jesus. Look with me. Verse 51 of Luke chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, in other words, we're fast forwarding here, the fulfillment of Jesus being betrayed by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the idea of him being killed when that time was drawing near, this is what happened. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
But he turned, Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. When we read John's gospel, the fourth chapter, we see that Jesus is at Jacob's well and he's talking to the Samaritan woman. And this was uh, flying in the face of the culture where a purebred Jew, a full-blood Jew, would be talking to what was considered to be a half-breed, a Samaritan. Samaritan was somebody, was a Jewish person or in their history. They were Jews who intermarried with non-Jews. So they were considered impure, sellouts by the Jewish people. And the Samaritans weren't favorable toward the Jewish people, as you can see right here. They didn't receive Jesus because he had set his face toward Jerusalem. He was favorable toward Jerusalem. Now, in John chapter 4, we see when Jesus is having this discussion with the Samaritan woman, she asks him the question that was plaguing and troubling the Samaritans, where's the best place to worship? You Jews say it's in Jerusalem. Where's the best place to worship? You see, the Samaritans had set up their own places of worship because they had intermarried and they were considered sellouts by the Jewish people. So they had established their own places of worship. Jerusalem wasn't the place where the Samaritans held in high esteem and high regard to go to worship. They had watered down this idea of being pure and set apart and devoted to God, as any devout Jew would know, Jerusalem would hold a special place in the heart, the mind, the lifestyle, the practice of a worshiping true worshiper. And so here we see the reality of Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 3. Isaiah 53, 3. He, Jesus, Speaking in one of the greatest of all the passages in the Bible, Isaiah 53, you want to take some time to understand the prophetic statement made about what the life of Jesus would be like, life going to the cross, life headed to the cross. You look at Isaiah chapter 53, and this is just one verse. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Here we see that being realized in Luke chapter 9. Verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar, acquainted, commonplace in the life of Jesus was suffering and rejection. Now notice in Luke's gospel in this section, in chapter 9, it says twice with just a little bit of a different set way it's said twice in verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then his face was set toward Jerusalem. One of the things you have to understand when it comes to loving God and what does love for God look like One of the characteristics of loving God, what love for God, love to God, love and devotion to God really looks like, it's focused. Love for God is focused on fulfillment of the will of God. It is not possible to love God, to truly love God, although many people might say that they love God, 
True love for God is manifest in an unwavering focus on the fulfillment of the will of God. It is not possible to separate love for God, devotion to God, from fulfillment and focus on the will of God. Jesus has told the disciples, as we've just talked about it, the Son of Man is going to be given into the hands of men, going to be betrayed by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. And what does Jesus now do? Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, the very place where that's going to happen. It will be in Jerusalem where Jesus is rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. And so Jesus is demonstrating for us this absolute love and devotion to his Father that is manifest in an unwavering focus on the will of God. It is not possible to separate love for God from a focus, an all-consuming passion, a devotion to the will of God. It's not possible. And it's not possible to be devoted to God, to love God, to be focused on the fulfillment of the will of God, and to neglect the Word of God. It's not possible to love God, to be focused on the will of God, and have all of your life surrounding that premise, being devoted toward the fulfillment of the will of God. It's not possible to do that if you are neglecting the word of God. Now, all the time, we struggle with consciously sometimes, unconsciously at other times, submitting our will to the will of God. And when you begin to understand that submitting yourself to the will of God is an overflow of your loving devotion to God, you have a much easier time fulfilling the will of God. You have a much easier time focusing on the will of God. A life that is truly Loving to God, a life that is consumed with love for God, devotion to God, must be a life that is focused upon, centered upon with laser precision, all-consuming passion, consumed, focused, pursuing the will of God. We all struggle with the will of God. The reason why we struggle with the will of God is because we're really struggling with love for God. D.L. Moody said it best, if only people understood the love of God, they would be flocking to him. How true it is. You want to understand whether or not you really love God. You look at how consumed you are with the will of God. Is your life centered upon the will of God to such a degree that it's like Jesus where he set his face to go to Jerusalem? From this point on, Jesus is living especially out in the open to the disciples. They're now beginning to see a transition in the life of Jesus that is focused upon his death. Now, Jesus was always focused upon his death throughout his whole life, but now it's been disclosed to the disciples that he lived to die. Now they're seeing what love for God looks like. It looks like a person who is so consumed with God, so in love with God, that the only thing that they are consumed with is the will of God. Jesus is a great example for us 
of what it means to love God to such a degree that the will of God is the only pursuit that makes sense in life. In fact, if you're pursuing anything apart from the will of God, you're out of your mind. Jesus devoutly, resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem because he knew that it was there in Jerusalem that he would be betrayed. He knew that it was there in Jerusalem that the elders, the chief priests, the scribes would condemn him. Although it was by illegal means, they violated the way they should have held a court of law in the Sanhedrin. You know, some of us have this idea, this understanding that if I do the will of God, it's going to bring me personal satisfaction and personal pleasure. Be careful you don't take that bait. Be careful you don't drink the Kool-Aid. It's the selfishness of human nature, the selfishness of man that has confused devotion to God with self-gratification and personal pleasure. Every once in a while, I'll have somebody come to talk with me, send me an email, talk with me in person, and they will just put right out there in the open the struggle that you and I have day in, day out. And the struggle is, they'll say, but I love God. I know what the Bible says in this area. Fill in the blank. I just can't do that. See, that's a misunderstanding of what it means to love God. To love God is to pursue the will of God, and you cannot pursue the will of God and love God apart from the word of God. If you will not obey God in the black and white of Scripture, what he clearly teaches, of course you're going to have problems in the gray areas of life. The primary pursuit in your life The primary pursuit in my life must be the pleasure of God, not the pleasure of self. You'll either love yourself and be devoted to yourself and put yourself on the pedestal where you will be the God of your life. Even if you call yourself a Christian, be careful, be careful. The tendency with a living sacrifice is to crawl off the altar. You will either be devoted to self where your pursuits in life are really wrapped up in personal gratification, pleasure, or you will be pursuing God and his pleasure. And Jesus demonstrates for us that it was not his own pleasure that he sought, it was the pleasure of his Father. He set his face toward the place where he would die. So much so that in Luke chapter 22, turn with me. In Luke chapter 22, we have an amazing example of the degree to which Jesus was dedicated toward loving his Father. The degree to which Jesus loved his Father. The degree to which Jesus loved and loves you. There are two people who sent Jesus to the cross. 
his father, first and foremost, because it was the will of his father that he go there and pay the price for your sin and for mine. And it was also his love for you. Jesus wouldn't die for junk. Jesus wouldn't pursue garbage. The truth is that you're worth a great deal to Jesus Christ. You're worth a great deal to the Father. You and I struggle with that. We have difficulty believing that, but it's true. Jesus wouldn't die for junk. Jesus wouldn't pursue garbage. For God so loved the world. John 3.16, we know it, but we don't really understand it. For God so loved you that he gave his one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth like none other son, Jesus. That the moment you believe in him, you would not go into an eternity separate from him, but you'd have life eternal. Before we get to Luke chapter 22, 2 Timothy, look with me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. True love is manifest in a focus on the will of God. Look at this, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. True love has a focus on pleasing your heavenly father. Look at this. This is the difference between a civilian versus a soldier mentality. Jesus had a soldier mentality, not a civilian mentality. Those who follow Jesus are like Jesus, and you have as your plea, your aim of your life. The focus of your life is to please the one who enlisted you, your heavenly father. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem because he knew it was there that he would die. Jesus knew that his personal pleasure was not the objective. It was the pleasure of God that was the objective. And listen to this, it was also your pleasure too. It's not only the pleasure of God through the cross of Christ, it's also your pleasure too. When you really love God, your aim, your focus is to please your master. It's to please God. It is to do the will of God of God, not pursue personal pleasure. And Jesus demonstrates that for us with absolute clarity. He demonstrates what it is to be so consumed with love for the Father, so consumed with love for you, that he would actually put himself At the bottom of the list in terms of importance, he would humble himself to the point of death so that you could have life. To know ahead of time what lay before him with the spitting in his face and the whipping with the cords and the beating and the ridiculing and the mocking while all along knowing who he was. When you truly love God, you understand who you are and no weapon formed against you will detract you from pure and simple devotion to God. 
Jesus never had a personality crisis. Jesus never had an identity crisis. Jesus was never uncertain about who he was. It was because he knew who he was in relationship to his father that he could endure the scorn of the cross. He could endure the shame. This is why in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, look with me at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Look at what it says. He was wounded for our transgressions, our sin, every single one of them. He was crushed for our iniquities, every single one of them. Upon him, Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, you are healed. Now, wait a second here. People have taken that last section, with his stripes you're healed, as a reference to physical illness. Do I, now, do I believe that Jesus is able to take care of physical illness? Yes. As one who's experienced miraculous healing myself, yes, I believe that. However, the writer of Isaiah likens sickness to sin. That's his whole point. The biggest sickness in your life and in mine is the sickness of sin. When you truly love God as Jesus did, as Jesus does, loves the Father, it will cause you to be selfless, to be centered upon the well-being of others. So much so that when we get to Luke chapter 22 and verse 39, look with me at what Jesus went through. He came out, and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. We read the other gospel accounts, the Garden of Gethsemane, which means pressure. Jesus is in the Garden of Pressure, being pressured. Just a few hundred yards from the wilderness area, you've heard me say it before, but we need to hear it again. Jesus purposefully, intentionally went to a place where he was within harm's way, easily findable by the Romans. It was his custom. If Jesus wanted to elude the Romans, he wouldn't have gone to the customary place where they knew they could have found him. There's a symbolism of God where Jesus purposely, intentionally goes to the garden of pressure to experience this kind of pressure. The punishment that brought you peace is now upon the shoulders of Jesus to such an extent that we get a glimpse by a doctor, Luke, into what Jesus was experiencing for your benefit, for mine, for the pleasure of God. See, when you really love your heavenly Father, other people will benefit from your obedience. Jesus was living with such a life of focus, such a life of passion toward pleasing his Father and toward giving you benefit that he endured this. When he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. This is maybe 10 20 yards, maybe 30 yards, close enough that they would be able to witness what we're about to read. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. True love surrenders to the will of your heavenly Father, regardless of personal cost. 
True love surrenders to the will of the Father regardless of personal cost. How do you know whether or not you really love God? Are you selfish, self-centered, or do you have God's will as the focus of your life? See, doing the will of God is how you demonstrate, how we demonstrate love for God. And this is precisely what Jesus is doing. And what he's doing here is he's asking the Father for his will to be done. Is it possible for you to be appeased with the sin of the human race without me going to the cross? He's struggling. I want to do your will. I want to please you. Somehow, if it's possible for me to not go through what I need to go through and still please you, let that be the case. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. True love for God is manifest by absolute unconditional submission to God. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them jumping for joy. No. Sleeping for sorrow. The words that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 9 are now starting to sink in, this overcome with sorrow. They're now going to lose their friend. They're now going to lose their master. Their dreams of the messianic kingdom, the way they envisioned them, and deliverance from the Romans are now evaporating. The dream is going up in smoke, and they're falling asleep. They're overcome with the sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is written by a doctor, verse 44. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. The more difficult your circumstances, when you love God, you don't let your circumstances drive you away from him. You let your circumstances, watch this, you let your circumstances become the divine catalyst to draw you near to God, not drive a wedge between you and God. How many times have difficulties happened in your life? They've happened in mine. They will happen again. How many times have you let the difficulties in your life become a wedge between you and God instead of a magnet? When you are truly in love with your heavenly Father and you are truly consumed with doing the will of your heavenly Father, no circumstance in life will deter you from obeying your heavenly Father and loving your heavenly Father. Jesus because he was in agony drew near to his heavenly Father. Now I wish I would have known that on Wednesday when our power was out. And in the afternoon, I drove about an hour down to Maryland because it was the only place where I could get a generator. Now, I was smart enough in our house to have it wired for a generator. The problem is, my electrician wasn't smart enough to wire it properly. So I went down to Maryland, the only place that I could get a generator from... I was smart enough not to call up a place. They told me they had one or two generators. I knew if I got there, they'd be gone. Drove down to Maryland, spent the money on the generator, spent the money on the ridiculous amount of money for the cord between the generator and the outlet. Came back to my house, started up that generator, was so excited, I even read the manual. How about that? (laughs) Got that generator going. 
got the plug in my hands and I noticed, wait a second, that outlet will not work with this plug. And I had the right plug, had the right cord, called up my electrician, oh, I made a mistake. I'll be there tomorrow. And I'll tell you what, I just about lost my sanctification. (laughs) You can ask my wife, you can ask my kids. At that moment, I was totally human. Unlike you. You would have risen above the occasion. You would have remembered that the love of God is the focus of our whole lives. You would have remembered that it's just a generator and gee whiz, I've got food and clothing, I've got a roof over my head, what am I complaining about? No, my plan was foiled. To be so protected, so encased. See, when you really love God, you will put yourself in harm's way. Difficult things will happen to you when you love God and that's the pursuit of your life. And you have to be aware of the fact that if you're not careful, something else, personal pleasure, that's why I was getting so torqued. Personal comfort becomes the me, myself, and I thing upon which, around which life centers. No, it's not about a life of convenience. It's not a life of pleasure. It's not a life devoid of pain and difficulty and hardship. It's a life of of pursuing and loving God. It's a life of doing the will of God. It's a life of manifesting the goodness of God, regardless of what's happening in your life. Aren't you so thankful that Jesus didn't send Pastor Mike to die on the cross for you? You'd still be dead in your sins. And I'd be all toasty warm with my generator at my house. But in Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood. This is the only place in all of the gospels where it says that. There's nothing more intrinsically different about the liquid properties of blood versus the liquid of water and how it drops on the ground. I think it's significant that Luke is the one recording this as the medical doctor because there is a condition when somebody's facing sudden death and they know about it. When somebody is under so much stress and so much pressure that it's unbearable, there is a medical condition, although it's rare, it can happen. And I think it happens here. This is why Luke records it. This is why Luke is fascinated with it as the physician that he is. It's called hematidrosis. And hematidrosis is when the capillaries under the skin burst. The capillaries surrounding the sweat glands burst and the blood actually oozes through the pores of the skin. And sometimes it can be so bad that the sweat and the blood mixed together beat up on the face and drip down. The punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. True love for God is manifest in such an unwavering surrender to God the Father that it results in a selflessness, a focus on the glory and the pleasure of God, regardless of what it will cost the individual, regardless, because the outcome is the glory of God and the pleasure of others, not self. 
Jesus loved you and me so much. Gave us an object lesson. In Luke chapter 22, sitting down with the Last Supper. Verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. To eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. See, there are multiple cups in the Last Supper. We'll come back to the final, the third of the four cups. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. So consumed am I with my love for my heavenly Father. So consumed am I that with the idea of you being forgiven of all your sins and I'm going to give my very body for you. And he was giving us a symbol through the bread, through the Passover feast, where he, the spotless Lamb of God, would be given not just a lamb, but the Lamb of God, giving us a reminder through the breaking of the bread of the high price that was paid in the relentless pursuit of pleasing the Father, resulting in your pleasure as well. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what Jesus did. He broke it as a symbol to show what true love really looks like. The selfish person doesn't make a sacrifice for another. Selfish person isn't interested and consumed with the glory of God. The selfless person is consumed with the glory of God and the pleasure of others at their own expense. And Jesus demonstrates that for us. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.